Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show, Wildcard Weekend, almost in the books. We're recording this on Monday evening ahead of Bucks Cowboys to decide who will get to go uh, to Levi Stadium for the Sunday night game on Divisional Round Weekend. Yeah, we're just five or six days away from the best weekend in the football in Canada. Canada? calendar even. God, I'm all over the shop. It's been a long weekend already as it is. I'm Will Gavin. Probably shouldn't admit that at this point. Alongside me, Ollie Hunter, Simon Clancy from Gridiron. Gents, how are we all feeling after the bulk of wildcard weekend is in the books? Exhausted, Willie. <laughs> yeah? January is so long. You've got the College Football National Championship, playoffs, all of this stuff. It's like 4 or 5 a.m. bedtimes. It's just, I'm too old for this shit, Will. It has to be said, though, when we look at this whole thing from like the 30,000 foot view, and okay, we don't know what Cowboys box is going to be like, but we were predicting that was going to be one of the tighter games of the weekend going into it. I, like, I never could have expected with the seventh seeds coming in, with some of the quality of the teams in there, with three teams starting third string quarterbacks, with everything else that actually the Ravens started their second string in the end, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I never could have expected that of the five games we've had this weekend already, four of them were by one score. The opening game of the weekend, yes, it turned into a second half blowout, but only after an incredibly tight and entertaining first half. Like the quality of the games overall, maybe not the quality of the football itself, but the quality of the games this weekend, Ollie, has been sensational. He's frozen. It's been an unbelievable weekend, Will. I mean, I think the game has been outstanding, it, exciting. It, it, it's just to say, it says a lot that on video, I didn't realise Ollie had frozen. <laughs> I just, just assumed he was that gormless. Yeah, no, it's. I thought it has been a great weekend. The games have been exciting, action-packed, loads of big plays, loads of incredible plays, all sorts of talking points and subplots and all those things. I, it's just been, um, I, I've loved it. It's been, it's been superb. The, the football's been superb. Let's keep it simple. Just work our way through the weekend chronologically, starting on Saturday night, where the 49ers beat the Seattle Seahawks for the third time this season, advanced to the NFC divisional round. It was, you have to say, Brock Purdy's worst half of football, followed by probably his best half of football in a game where the Seahawks hung around in a big way, led 17 to 16 at the half, but just got decimated in the second. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know what you think, but you are, uh, as a 49ers fan, I know that we've discussed this privately, but um, I think the bigger picture stuff with the 49ers is so fascinating because what do you do with Brock Purdy? Like reading reading Peter King this morning and listening to, to George Kittle talking about him, listening to Brandon Ayuk talk about him, listening to Jimmy Ward talking about him, the players, both offensively but also defensively, have bought in so magnificently in terms of, you know, Jimmy Ward saying he's an absolute dog. He's an absolute, you know, we love the kid. Kittle just saying, look, his story's amazing, but he's just an amazing player. He just exudes confidence. He, we, you know, he had a rough half, but Kittle saying, you know, I watched loads of his games at Iowa State and, you know, we we known the kind of guy that he was. The, the biggest question for me is what the 49ers do in the offseason in terms of you've got this, you've got Trey Lance there as the, as the third overall pick. He's 22 years old. He's a year younger than Will Levis, who's going to go in the first round. 
if Brock Purdy gets to the NFC Championship game or gets to the Super Bowl, I just don't see that you can go back to Trey Lance at this point. And and perhaps, potentially, you then bring in a veteran quarterback, and whether that's Jimmy Garoppolo, but you look at guys like Case Keenum or Ty- Taylor Heineke, who are both free agents who could potentially fill that need. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a general manager who's looking to spend a first-round pick on Anthony Richardson, as they undoubtedly will, the kid out of Florida, you know, Lance doesn't have a, you know, a massively different skill set to that. Teams are going to be phoning up for a 22-year-old kid who spent two years in the in the Carl Shanahan system, two years in the NFL, understands what it means to be a pro, has got an NFL ready-made skill set. I, I think the 49ers could be absolutely quids in in terms of potentially, you know, taking a deal because Purdy just fits the scheme and the system so well. Defense is fantastic. I thought it was a great offensive performance in terms of just the way Shanahan schemed guys open. There were, you know, I know Brock had a rough first half, but guys were wide open all day, and just the kind of the the commitment to the cause, whether it's Trent Williams, whether it's McGlinchey, whether it's Brandon I blocking down the field, use check. It's just a, an absolutely you know firing on all cylinders operation, and I, yeah, but that that's a really fascinating one for me for the off season, but. I think, I think, yeah. from my perspective, you can see a lot about how Shanahan feels about him. When I, I chatted to Greg Papper ahead of the game this weekend, the, the play-by-play caller for local mm. San Francisco radio, who is, by the way, one of the smartest football brains I've been lucky enough to talk to, and really, really knows his stuff. And he was saying to me after Thursday practice, he was like, "Man, you should have seen Brock ripping it in the rain, like more so than we've ever seen from Jimmy, more so than we've ever seen from any quarterback he can remember in the bad weather." He's like. They're going to throw it this weekend. They will mm. come out and they will throw it. And it proved that way. Shanahan throwing the ball 19 times in the first half. And like I say, Purdy lucky there was at least one that was very interceptable. And, you know, he was he was off overall in the first half. Still made two or three really key plays and still showed all that stuff that I've fallen in love with him about, about his pocket presence, about his reading of pressure. For the most part, I think pre-snap he could get a little bit better. There's quite a bit of time where somebody brings pressure to the weak side of the formation, the opposite side to where either the tight end or the sick lineman is, and he doesn't always get it pre-snap. Tends to step up and avoid it, but put yourself in a better position, get some blocking aligned beforehand. We saw it a little bit with McCaffrey in the second half where he was doing a bit more pre-snap reads. But when you're talking like that kind of detail about uh, <laughs> the seventh round rookie who is starting only a sixth game in the NFL, it, it gives you a bit of an idea. And I, I think that I, I could write the book probably at this point about how I feel about Brock Purdy overall and, and all of the stories I've read and heard about what a great guy he is, how he has come in and just been the, the perfect pro from day one, how he is just completely... Like never at any point looked like a rookie either in practice in on in a game. Like he's just behaved like a ten year pro. But for me, it's that idea of I hadn't really thought about the Trey Lance tradeability. I what in my mind next year we were looking at Purdy Garoppolo gone, Purdy starting, Trey Lance coming off the injury. And there being a quarterback battle, essentially, between those two, if he was ready in time. If not, Purdy either acts as a high-end bridge quarterback or the long-term answer. We are looking at a league where we said it was 18 teams four or five weeks ago. I think it's probably down under 16 now. But there's still double-digit teams who don't know what their situation is going to be at quarterback next season. And part of that is me taking teams like the Texans off the table because they're going to draft one of those top two guys. Hmm. So somebody is probably going to come in and offer at least a first plus some other bits and pieces. 
and when you've got a guy like Brock Purdy who's playing as well as he is, you've got to be tempted by it when you've you've given up so much to get Trey Lance in the first place and to go and get Christian McCaffrey as well. I uh, just <laughs> don't don't forget Purdy is just twenty three. Jeremy, it's not like he's a twenty. It's not like he's just you know twenty five. This isn't Stetson Bennett or you know this. He's just twenty three. Uh, if he gets to the championship game, given how well he's played, I just don't see a scenario where you can sit. You know. Deep down, maybe John Lynch and Carl Shanahan think it would be great to have Trey on the team, on the roster, just in case Brock was a flash in the pan, just in case it was a Nick Foles at the Philadelphia Eagles run to the Super Bowl, whether it was that kind of thing, just a flash in the pan. And if it does start to go tits up, then you know we can insert the guy that was the third overall pick. But there has to be a sense that somebody is going to offer a first-round pick and change or a first-round pick and a player or a couple of twos or whatever to, to take the guy that was the third the third overall pick who is 22 years of age and, like I said, has been in the NFL scheme already for two years. Off your hands. I just don't see a scenario in a quarterback unfriendly environment where, like you say, 12, 14, 16 teams still have question marks over that position that they just wouldn't do it. I just, to me, that's, that was just a no-brainer that something will happen. The other thing you talk about Purdy in the rain, don't forget, four years at Ames at Iowa State, it was, you know, raining a lot there, cold weather, all those sorts of things. So, But in terms of weather, you know, he's perfect for those those environments. Grew up in Arizona in the sun, but but certainly played his college football in a, you know, Ames gets really cold, you know, October, November. So that won't have been, that won't have been unusual for him at all. But I, I yeah. I think the Trey Lance situation will be very fascinating for the for the Fortnite. Let's look. This is a difficult team to talk about looking forward, and we will do later in the week when we know whether it is the Cowboys or the Bucks and what kind of performance those teams are coming off. Seattle overall, I have to say, particularly obviously that first half performance and DK Metcalf, the two Geno Smith drives after being stopped quite early. He had the back-to-back long touchdown drives where he played very well. I thought, you know, Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas after maybe showing a bit of their rookie side over the past five or six weeks, probably had their best game since the, the midpoint of the season. You know, Kenneth Walker, Tariq Woolen, Chenowosu, Kobe Bryant, there are building blocks there. I think it'd be fascinating to see what they do at quarterback because Gino and Pete Carroll, both after this game, spoke pretty glowingly about the idea of Gino coming back next year. The, the Franchise tag is going to be about $32 million if that's the direction they go in for a similar thing. Is it a flash in the pan or is this a guy who can be a viable starter going forward? Do you think they still take a quarterback at the top of the draft, even with Geno's performances this year? I would. I don't know what you think, Mike, but I I 100% think that you have to. I mean, you can't have, you can't be in the position that Seattle are in. Um, in terms of that high pick that they got from Denver and not look at a Will Levis or a Bryce Young and think that, you know, or even an Anthony Richardson, because Richardson is probably two or three years away from playing in the NFL because he's so raw. But the, the upside is high Cam Newton in terms of his ability. But if you think that Gino is going to be the guy for at least a year, maybe two years, then you can just you can just put Richardson behind Gino, who's a great teacher anyway. He's a great leader. He's a great guy. He's always been known to be incredibly helpful to quarterbacks that he's worked with and just have somebody like Richardson. I just don't think that you can ignore that position given the fact that, you know, it's a really strong draft and you're going to be drafting what fourth, fifth overall and not take a quarterback, especially as they've got two first rounders. So you can also look at, you know, another area of need, especially on defense a pass rusher, whatever it is, 
um, with that other first round pick. I, ju- I just think they can't ignore that position, no matter how well Gino's played. He's into his 30s. He's only really had one year as a starter. He did tail off in the back end of the season. Um, I, I just don't think that you can be certain that his security is, you know, another four, five, six, eight, ten years. That, that, I, that to me, John Schneider, you know, he's a smart guy. That makes no sense. Right, turn our attention to the Saturday late game. Are you with us now, Michael McQuaid? Because Ollie Hunter is just struggling almighty. I, yes, I am. And obviously, Ollie Hunter. Um, sorry about your Wi-Fi, Ollie. I will be happily drafted in as the replacement. I, I will just add, Will, if you don't mind, what you, what Cy said about Gina Smith. It's always good to have a backup option. If Seattle realized six months ago, seven months ago, that they'd be in a situation that they're in now, they've got a high draft pick because of the Broncos. Russell Wilson had the season that he had. And Gino Smith had the season that he had. I think if Gino was given the option that he had six months ago facing himself. Now he would have bit someone's arm off for it. If Gino can find a way to negotiate a deal that's beneficial to him and the team, draft a quarterback to potentially bring in after Gino's gone, allow Seattle not to spend too much money or too much capital on a quarterback, and I think that's the best way. But it's it's interesting because you look, and I know you'll probably talk about this at some point during the podcast, Daniel Jones is a really intriguing option after next week or the week after. Like, what the hell are the Giants going to do there? Because you ha- for me, you have to tag him. This lad, like, has had an unbelievable season. They have to, they have to sign him. They can't but tag they, him. Yeah, well, they they're going to have to do something where it's... I don't know why I thought he could be tagged. They're going to have to do something where it's a situation where they cannot pay him, like, Kirk Cousins money. They can't do it because if Geno Smith and Daniel Jones have had that, as you guys have said, flash in the pan season, then... What are you going to be like in nine months' time when the rest of your t- the, the rest of your competitors in your division that have had eight to nine months off to study tape and to work out your quarterback or work out your offense in a better way are going to potentially bring that down a peg? So I think it's it's massive decisions, and that's why uh, John Snyder, that's why different guys are getting paid the big bucks to actually make decisions. Uh, I'm, I'm glad well, the I'm Giants have got some really. Giants have got some really interesting decisions to make because you look at there. There's two key defenders: Dexter Lawrence, who's just become an absolute monster, and Xavier McKinney, who was again fantastic yesterday. And at times they matched him up one on one with Justin Jefferson, and he was brilliant. They're going to need paying very soon. You can't let Daniel Jones go in. You can't franchise Daniel Jones or tag him and have him improve again, which he looks like he's going to do because the the marriage between him and Dayball is so good. And then get to 2024 and have to pay him an absolutely monster you you could probably get him at a cheaper deal now than in 12 months time I think they've got to pull the trigger on a deal because he fits so well that that he's absolutely beloved by his teammates Barkley loves him Dayball loves him he's perfect for that New York Giants environment and he's just developing into a really solid quarterback I, I think you pull the trigger and save the money Right, let's um, just turn our attention to the late game. Let's do that one on the Saturday. The Jacksonville Jaguars, after a disastrous first, well, 28 minutes of this game, with fewer than two minutes remaining in the first half, find themselves 27 to nothing down. Four turnovers, four interceptions for Trevor Lawrence in his first ever playoff game at the uh, NFL level. Finally, the Saturday record looks like it's going to be wiped off. And he just turns it around in the most phenomenal fashion. And yes, things had to work out in their favor. And yes, the Chargers had to be in full-blown Chargers form and fail on 
going for it on fourth downs, which Brandon Staley has to take some jip for and settling for field goals and missing field goals through Cameron Dicker late in the game. Everything had to go wrong for them that went wrong. But do not take away from Trevor Lawrence and this Jacksonville Jaguars, who everyone had written off midway through the first half and end up going to divisional round weekend. I've got some inside information, actually, as to what happened in that game. Um, because at half time, when Lawrence went into the locker room, he apparently put on a pair of headphones and listened to last week's Gridiron Show, <laughs> where he heard the conversation about him never losing a game on a Saturday and suddenly thought to himself, wow, I've got this record to uphold. And those guys in England are just going to absolutely rag on me if I don't. Came out in the second half and was astonishing. And, and so really, it was the Gridiron Show what won it, I think, because um, I know that Trevor's obviously a big listener. But no, it was just a phenomenal. What I thought was really amazing, actually, about that game, apart from everything else, was when Doug Peterson came off at halftime and Kaylee Hartung interviewed him and said, you know, he was down 27 nothing, and his superstar quarterback had thrown four picks. And he was literally like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We're all really chilled. You know, I'm just going to go into the boys and say, look, the game's not over. I need to come out, make a stop. Let's get the ball back, score on offense. So we're going to win the game and it's absolutely fine. And I was like thinking, wow, Doug, you are absolutely. I, it's I, just, did, I think it was a phenomenal I, coaching I do think getting the touchdown before half time and knowing that, okay, we've had a disaster, but that disaster has all happened in the first 20 minutes of game time of this game. And actually, we're only 20 points down going into the second half against the Chargers team, who we know have a propensity to collapse, who we know have a head coach who can't game manage and has real problems with that side of things. I, I, I can completely see why getting that late touchdown made them go, right, I think we can do this. I believe like uh, to be an elite athlete, you have to have a certain amount of ridiculous self-belief, but I totally understand why the Jaguars at halftime are like, we are not out of this game of football. I echo what Sai said about the whole show last week in Gridiron. I mean, if Trevor Lawrence seen the Gridiron WhatsApp group at, uh, at about one o'clock on Saturday morning, he, would have been he may as well be in. He I mean, well. I will openly say that I went to bed at the half thinking that it was over. Um, and I stupidly done that because I can only compare the next morning when I woke up and looked at my phone and seen the ESPN notification to waking up after a night out and not knowing how you've got to bed. The fear that I was like, oh my God, they came back. And then actually sitting down and watching the second half and the manner in which they came back. The, like that, and we, again, I know it's like we're, we're sounding like a broken record here, Sai, and you've said it many times on the, the, the last few weeks. That offense that Lawrence has is just... God, I can't wait to see it. I genuinely cannot wait to see Evan Engram. I can't wait to see Christian Kirk against the Kansas City Chiefs. I genuinely think the Jags could go to Arrowhead and put up 25 to 30 points. That being said, they could get absolutely demolished. Next year, he's getting Calvin Ridley as well. So it's just like, you know, you throw that into the mix too. I mean... That I love the that that call. I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but the call on fourth down where they loaded up with the the two big tight ends with Dan Arnold and um, your man uh, whose name completely escapes me, but the third string tight end in the background in the backfield as if they were going to push Lawrence over and then just turned and handed it to to Etienne, who just beat. Yeah, but the fact that kind of the irony of him beating Asante Samuel to the corner, as Sam, Samuel had had three picks already, it just was was fantastic. A play drawn up by the 37-year-old assistant offensive line coach, who uh, which just sort of speaks to Doug Peterson's absolute sort of um, comfort in his own skin, in a way. To can be I, able can to, I say what really know. stands out to me about that call? Is the timeout that they took ahead of that play. Yes. That they yeah, lined absolutely. up ready to go for it had a play in mind, didn't like what they saw, knew that this was essentially the game. And Doug Peterson, with that little bit of head coaching now that he's got from going and winning a Super Bowl, 
calls that timeout, has a word, changes the play, goes for something as ballsy as that, and it ends up going and winning them the game. And look, I, over, like beyond anything else with this, Doug Peterson is someone who we, I think after that Eagles victory, you saw Frank Wright leave and you saw their entire coaching staff get decimated and Carson Wentz come back and be not very good. And there was this kind of this assumption that Doug Peterson had only got and won a Super Bowl because he had a really good coaching staff around him and a very talented football team. Could it be that actually the Jaguars have gone and got themselves an absolute bargain in this guy? Because there weren't a lot of people banging down his doors over the two years he was out of coaching. And yet, when you consider... Okay, there was a very low bar with Urban Meyer, but when you consider the complete turnaround of, of this franchise, particularly in the second half of the season... What a phenomenal coaching job he's done and, and what how much he was the right man for that situation is amazing. And still the hardcore of that Philadelphia team that is the best team in the NFC in terms of its record is still, you know, you look at Jason Kelsey and Brandon Graham and those players are still, you know, historically, that's they're his guys. You know, he didn't become a bad coach overnight. Um, and people said he lucked out and won the Super Bowl, like you said, because they had a great... He won the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback in Nick Foles beating the best team of the last 20 years and he beat them in a shootout it wasn't a lucky win it wasn't a you know he beat them in a toe-to-toe track meet in a shootout with a backup quarterback who uh, you know as we know then had another you know run in the playoffs the following year but as you know has never really fulfilled the the promise that he showed the early part of his career apart from during that run and you go in and you look what he did uh, in Jacksonville you look how he turned things around they've gone eight and two over the last 10 weeks uh, because they were pretty objectionable in London when they came here. It was a really bad performance, Mike, wasn't it? And now, you know, they're on the precipice of getting to an AFC championship, having to go to Kansas City. But with a, you know, Mike Caldwell's defense can get after it. They can rush the pass with four. They can play coverage. They've got a really good secondary, young secondary. But Tyson Campbell is a stud on the corner. Um, Ray Sean Jenkins is a good player. They can blitz. They can they can sit back in coverage. Uh, they can play special teams. Although I did think Riley Patterson's I did think when it was in the air halfway towards the towards the goalpost that maybe it was just going to swing past. But, you know, who would be shocked if they went to Arrowhead and beat the Chiefs? I don't think I would. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but we wouldn't we wouldn't all be going, wow, that's the greatest shock of all time. You know, it's uh, and the mental fortitude, Mike, for Trevor Lawrence to just turn that around was was astonishing because I would have just been like every time I go throw the ball, I feel like it's going to be picked off. And if it does, I mean, do you ever, you know, who would come back from? Four picks in the game. It's just he was one away from equaling the playoff record for interceptions, which was crazy. And I know, I know, Jim Nance uh, sort of jinxed Josh Allen on that yesterday at the start of the game. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, Al Michaels, lads, the the, that call. I love Al Michaels, but that call was that was awful. What's going on there? Yeah, I think like it was atrocious, but I think putting him with Dungy, not with a kind of like with Herb Street, he's done a decent job this year because he's got that energy on the other side of the booth. And actually, I don't think Herb Street's had a particularly great year. He's such a good college guy, but like they just it was the wrong pairing. It was the wrong moment. It just absolutely made kind of no sense whatsoever. Should have put him with Orlovsky or Pat McAfee. I mean, I know it's NBC, but they you know they aren't scared of changing. You know, but Dungy is, I mean, Dungy's interesting, but he doesn't give that sort of, he's not evoking of great moments. But the field goal, like, it was like Al had completely dialed it in, and especially as it came 24 hours after he complained about not having good games for Amazon this year. It did seem a little bit, and I do love Al Michaels, like you say, but. 
yeah, it, it wasn't as much weird. of a shootout um, as the when the Colts beat the the Chiefs 45-44. That was like what 2013, 2014. But mm. I saw a lot of comparisons to that Andrew Luck performance, where he came out through three interceptions, found himself down twenty eight points, and then just completely in the second half turned it around and. You know, obviously injury ended that career early, but that is the kind of special talent we could be talking about with Trevor Lawrence. So very, very excited. I just want to talk about what Joey Bosa said after the game and just in general, because I first thing I'm going to do is be positive about officiating. The, actually, the system that they have brought in this year, which is kind of like the basic version of Sky Judge, where they have that instant replay auto review where they're just very quickly going, no, that decision's wrong, change it. Which I think could be extended yeah. much further, but is immediately speeding up games. Not all games. We'll talk Bill Dolphins in a minute. But is immediately speeding up games. <laughs> I think that's still going on that. Game. <laughs> uh, immediately speeding up games, immediately making them, you know, more more palatable on TV and everything. But they're... <laughs> Joey Bosa talking about the holding calls that weren't given against him. Obviously, he had two big penalties in this game. The second one after he threw his helmet down in anger on the sideline. And he gave this really funny post-game interview where in the first half of it, he seemed rel- he was angry, but relatively rational. He was like, he talked about being out there and playing on half a leg and being dragged to the ground. And he's, he's like, you know, basically saying like, he could get hurt in addition to his team getting screwed over. And then he said, I watched it back and maybe some of the holds weren't as blatant as I thought. And he got about halfway through this thought and it's like, he suddenly just went, do you know what? Screw it. I, I, it's the end of the season. I don't care if I get fined here. And I'm going to quote you what he then said after it. Cause it's astonishing. He said, I think there needs to be more accountability. If I say something to them, I get a 40 K fine. If I bl- if they blow a call that ruins an entire team season, they're probably back in the locker room laughing, going, ha ha, got that up. 15 yards, what a loser. I guarantee that's what they're like when they talk in the back. They're on a power trip. I'm sick of those f***ing people. I'm sorry. I'm sick of it. I- Joey Moser just going and blowing it up was, you know, a moment of emotion and joy that I particularly enjoyed. So we talk about the NFL, but have you ever experienced the NFL in its natural state, live and in person in America, surrounded by tens of thousands of screaming partisan fans after spending hours beforehand in the car park outside the stadium, enjoying a cold beer, maybe one or two, as the smell of barbecue and tailgate food wafts deliciously through the air. If not, or if you have, and you fancy doing it again, well, Touchdown Trips folks are the experts in creating amazing travel packages for your favorite NFL team. And when we say amazing, we mean it. The guys and the girls at Touchdown Trips put fans first and are passionate. The fans who book with them get a proper, unforgettable, and more importantly, a unique NFL experience. You don't just get tickets, but an authentic pre-game tailgate with local fans. College fan? You want to go to a college game, stadium tour? Why not? As well as all that, they include flights from across the UK. They've got fantastic hotels and anything else you may want to add, such as an NBA game or an NHL game or a local excursion to create truly bespoke packages that are more importantly, at all protected and ABTA bonded. 
So if you're thinking of going to a game this season or next and just want to get in touch, give the team at Touchdown Trips a shout today at touchdowntrips.com. Check them out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash touchdown trips or Twitter at touchdown trips. Touchdown Trips, you have to see it to believe it. And I think it all stemmed from the fact that he got called for for offside when his helmet was slightly over that. That that seemed to be the moment where it just because it was such a big moment in the game anyway, in terms of in terms of what happened. But yeah, I mean, he really did go postal. <laughs> and it was very strange. And actually, I thought generally over the weekend, apart from the Dexter Lawrence, the Dexter Lawrence um, sack that oh. was called as. Um, roughing which was horrendous and I have to say that I didn't I didn't love the call at the end of the Miami Buffalo game in terms of the spot for no the third, I thought that was the first one I, I, oh yeah. did you okay well fair enough that's fine then. I didn't think it was the first down but I am a Dolphins fan so but generally I just oh, wait. thought overall the weekend I thought which one are we talking just about did... we talk about the Dolphins one that they didn't give the first down yeah, no, the one that they well, yes, the the waddle that they didn't give the first down for, and then the on the next drive to run out the clock, Singletary gets stopped like four yards short. There's a rugby scrum, and it looks like he's 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 short by about half a yard. But the refs give him a first down, and because there's not enough visual evidence then to overturn that back to not a first down, because everybody's huddled in, you can't really see where the ball is. They just gave him the first down. The game was over because otherwise it would have been third and one. Oh, It'd either been third and one or they'd have had to punt. I think they'd have had to punt with, um, you know, whatever it was left, 40 seconds or whatever. Yeah, so, I, 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 But apart from that, I think yeah, I, I do really remember thinking the Dolphins got screwed. I don't remember exactly the situation now because the game yeah. was four and a half hours long. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, four it was and actually a half just, like... it, it, was, it wasn't quite four and a half, but it did crest at four. And uh, admittedly, it was because there were so many turnovers and so many big plays and so many drives that either like were either quick score or three and outs or like there was so much turnover and so much turmoil within the game and a couple of injuries as well. You kind of, you kind of get it. But look, I, the first thing I, I want to start off on just very quickly on the Bills side of things, because they went into this as, as you were saying last week as the heaviest favorites in wildcard history is there some concern about like the fact that Josh Allen had two insane throws in this game, but also threw a bunch of interceptions and fumbled the ball three times. Like the bills feel like this was, they were very fortunate to come away with this with a win at all. And, you know, letting the dolphins cover by over 10 points is pretty astonishing. I do think that, and it's the same, I think Mike with the Bengals, Ravens game. I just think playoff games when you're playing a division foe often tend to be a bit weird. Um, and I think that was a bit weird um, yesterday in both of those games, actually. Because I think, like I was watching Good Morning, I was just having my lunch and watching Good Morning Football for five minutes earlier on. Jamie Erdahl made the point that, you know, you could play that Ravens-Bengals game a thousand times and the Bengals would probably win by more points than they won yesterday in 999 of them, but just because it is a division game, they played each other the week before. Miami played Buffalo, what, three weeks before before that? Uh, you know, um, so I kind of get the reason, Mike, don't you, that it was just, I just think those divisions, even that Seattle-San Francisco first half, I think yeah. because it was a division game in the, in, in the West, just added to the, they're not real, it's like, 
I think it's a bit like when you have the Merseyside derby or the or whatever, you know, form slightly yeah. goes out the window sometimes. That just, there's just something a bit different about it, and I think that that definitely parlays over into it's, the. NFL. It's funny because like I think I either said it to you or somebody else. I genuinely thought after the way that the Jaguars and Chargers ended, something just said to me like, "This Bills Dolphins game, Bills will win this game. It'll it'll not be a close game. It'll not be entertaining to watch for a neutral." Um, I thought I and I'll I, I've said it and I'll, I'll say it again. I thought the Vikings would walk over the Jaguars or sorry the, the the Giants last night and it didn't. Um, and I certainly thought that the Bengals would find a way to just take care of the Ravens where it wouldn't be a contest. And by God, man, how wrong I was! It's funny because it it is that the whole divisional aspect. It's it's the especially in Cincinnati. It's it's the crowd. It's it's the atmosphere. It's I mean you you heard the crowd when. The defense made that play last night. They were just on top. They, it was like some sort of reaction that you wouldn't get in any other game. Whereas, I'm I'm really intrigued to see the next slate of games this week because I, it sort of makes you think there's always an upset in the playoffs. But can we get an upset at this stage? Because you've obviously now got teams. So for example, you got the Bills against the bills against the Bengals, you've got the chiefs uh, playing up against the jaguars it's just it's just intriguing but the thing that really interests me i guess first off say is as uh will gavin is boiling his potatoes is what about this dolphins team i felt what really really bad reason? for you man last night because to go in with skylar thompson and to only lose the game by that much when josh allen had what two interceptions looked rusty in the second half a couple of big plays don't keep me wrong but they were there for the taking. And if I'm Patrick Mahomes, I'm looking at that Buffalo team last night and licking my lips, man. Seriously. Yeah. I, I think a bit of the emotion around the DeMar Hamlin thing from the week before probably was a bit of a carryover. It's been an incredible couple of weeks. They, they did look a bit emotionally flat, I've got to say. Um, I thought they were the better team, but I thought Miami should have beaten them, actually. you know. Um, and and the, the, the funny thing about Miami is that because I thought the Dolphins were going to get absolutely fixed, there you go. Um, I was so chill about the game. I kind of just, you know, nothing to lose, balls out a little bit, you know, get down 17 nothing, and you think, well, okay, it was, a, you know, it was generally, it was an okay season. It was a bit, you know, and then all of a sudden, when Zach Sealer picks up the fumble and we're leading 24-20 in the midway through the third quarter, you're just like, this can't be real can it and then even then for the bills to go up 34 24 and for us to come back to the point where you're down three you get the ball back we're now at midfield with three minutes to go and you're driving potentially to win the game it was so so from going in being really chilled about it and thinking i genuinely don't mind what happens now because i've come to terms i've countenanced the fact that we're going to lose and the season's over and it's great to then lose the way that we did in that most frustrating of manners with the with the just absolutely and it's been an issue all season it's been indicative of procedural penalties whether it's false starts whether it's motion penalties getting the calls in late having to take having to burn timeouts because the play clock's at two and we haven't even started running motion etc and so for it to end that way with that just absolutely heinous situation on on fourth and one where you know McDaniel said after the game that he was told by a member of staff that he that, that Waddle had got a first down and therefore they had a different personnel group in and then all of a sudden he complained to the ref and said look I was told that it was a first down and, it, and it's clearly not the refs then put the clock back to 25. 
They mumbled about on the sideline. They got into the huddle with the same personnel grouping and then all of a sudden started to run out a different personnel grouping with like 10 seconds to go because they wanted to go jumbo. And it was just like, what are you doing? We just need a yard. It's for, we don't even need a yard. You need like half a yard. Skylar Thompson's like six foot six. Just get, you know, Alec Ingold and Mike Kosicki in behind him, push him over, pick up the first down. And you've still got two and a half minutes to go with, you know, to, to, you, you need 15 yards to drive into field goal range to send it to overtime. It was just, it, it, <laughs> I was really angry having been completely chilled thinking, it, you know, it's okay. We're going to lose and it's okay. But we, I thought that I was really proud of them. I was proud of how hard they played. I thought the defense was outstanding apart from one or two calls. The cover zero call to leave oh. Howard and injured Xavier Howard on, on digs was frustrating, but, the, but yeah, it was. Um, I thought there were, there were three I or four times where generally. there was a blitz called, and I'm just screaming at the TV that that's the wrong call in that situation. I know uh, there was two, just two. I thought there were two really bad calls that Boyer made, uh, and actually, I thought generally he called a really good game, especially in the second half. I thought there were, the the defense was outstanding. Turnovers. I mean, Allen was sacked seven times. He was pressured a lot. There was the you know, a couple of bounces of the balls where they, they fumbled on the kick return. It bounced back towards the end and it bounced back into the hand when Bradley Chubb sacked Allen and it, he was fumbled. And then um, the the kid from North Dakota State picked up the, the, the tackle and it was just like, but look, you know, the better team overall one, I don't think Miami would have gone to Kansas City unless Tua was back. You know, but it just makes you think, you know, what would have happened if Tua had been playing yesterday? You know, if he was healthy and if he'd been playing, I mean, the Dolphins would have won that game, and I don't think there's a hell of an off season though, and got in, in Miami. That, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I mean, obviously, uh, there's still question marks over Josh Boyer. The understanding is that Greer, McDaniel's, and Tua, if he wants to be, are all back next year. How much, like, you know, without getting into the minutiae of the play too much necessarily, because we could be here for some time, but yeah, how much on that fourth and one taking the delay of game? Mike McDaniel said not really seeming to know what the situation was, miscommunication with his team. Like how hard is that going to hit him and the team in this off season? And, and yeah, I mean, assuming Boyer goes, there's going to be some, some big, big moves this, this, this summer to what's going to happen with the Dolphins. Yeah, I think they'll change the defensive scheme. The defensive scheme is predicated on having two shutdown man-to-man corners. Xavier Howard is 29, and you know we, we know hist- history says that when you get to 29-30 as a corner, your skill set begins to drop off. And he's been injured this season, but you know he's not been the same player. Byron Jones has been out all season, hasn't played. He won't be back either. So immediately, they don't have a first-round pick either, and they, they're fairly cash-strapped in terms of cap money. So it's going to be very difficult to, to play that same scheme because you're not going to have that corner talent. Boyer, I would imagine, gets fired, and then you start looking around. Does Brandon Staley get fired? If so, that's a perfect fit. You know What happens? Jim, Jim Schwartz, uh, Shane Bow, who are the guys that could potentially come in and, and change the scheme up a little bit? Because the front, the front four or the, the, the defensive line group is outstanding. Um, I think the call will have a bit of a hangover, but I do think the players have completely bought into McDaniel. They really love what he's done with the team. He's very uh, player-friendly. Uh, um, but I do think that that whether he needs to bring in, um, you know, a, a more experienced kind of uh, assistant head coach, who you know, who just comes in and just... Because they can't have these clock issues. And, and, and the problem was they, they couldn't use a timeout 
on that fourth down play because they'd already burned them for two procedural issues where they weren't going to get the clock. You know, they had to call timeouts because the clock was about to run out. And when you're you're literally motioning Tyreek Hill or Waddle or Sherfield with like two, you're not even starting that with two seconds to go. How can you, you know, it's ridiculous. They're breaking the huddle at like nine seconds and they've still got multiple motion to run. So it's a massive issue, I think, but loads of interesting things to happen in the offseason. And, and I think what was really good at the Dolphins yesterday was to come out straight away and give to Adam Schefter and give to Jeff Darlington and a couple of other trusted reporters that Tua was going to be the guy because then that ends all that kind of, you know, it, obviously it depends on whether he or not he wants to play. But the indications are that A, he wants to play, but also B, it just now shuts down all that talk about Brady, about Rodgers, about Derek Carr, about whoever. I think the job for Miami now is to get themselves a really solid, not injury prone backup. You know, Teddy Bridgewater just didn't work because he is injury prone, whether that's a Heineke, whether that's a Case Keenan, the same guys that we mentioned with Shanahan to come in and be a, a backup who you think can get you through three, four, five games if Tua is going to be hurt. So, yeah, interesting. We talked a lot about the TV broadcasters earlier on. I want to give Tom McCarthy on Westwood One a shout out and Ross Tucker alongside him, who on the, the call for that play... Tom McCarthy was literally calling it second by second. How many seconds were left on the play clock? Exactly where the teams were. What substitutions were happening? Like it was a masterful piece of radio commentary that just gave every sense of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not desperation, but just how uh, immediate the situation was and how much there was to sort out and how little time is left on the play clock. And it just, it drew me into the moment so much more than just watching it on the TV. Uh, sometimes radio's good, kids. You should try it sometime. Uh, <laughs> um, two more <laughs> games to talk about. Uh, the 9.30 game on Saturday, on Sunday, which saw... I know the Jags over the Chargers was an upset, but our first real upset of the weekend as the New York Giants beat the Minnesota Vikings by a clear touchdown. But was it an upset? Like the, the Giants set us up for this with that game against Minnesota back in week 15. There, They should have probably gone and won there. And you have to say, with the way that they are coached, and I th- that's not me putting down Kevin O'Connell, but... Brian Dayball storming into this team this season like stone cold, smashing through the glass and just dragging a performance out of Daniel Jones over the last seven or eight weeks, particularly on Sunday, that is deserving of this place in the playoffs. And now you were talking about Jacksonville going to the Chiefs this weekend. I Like the Giants going to Philadelphia, I don't think is an easy out for Philly by any stretch of the imagination now. I think... I don't know what you think about this side, but I, I think for any team that's that has momentum, playing and not having a bye week is so beneficial. I think the Niners are in that situation going into this weekend. They've won one eleven in a row. The Giants, there's two different elements. First off, yes, it was an upset in the sense that the Vikings are what they were thirteen and four, and you expected Kirk Cousins and this team with Jefferson Cook in the defense to do something and make a run in the playoffs after they win the NFC North quite easily, frankly. Um, but it wasn't an upset in the sense or the element of it was sort of clear after the play that Cousins made where he sneaked in after Jefferson should have had a touchdown. It was all New York. The defense, like, don't get me wrong, the defense for the Vikings wasn't, it hasn't been there in multiple weeks, but by God, they were still in bed when the game started last night. Like, Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, this Giants team ran over them and they deservedly won that game. Like, the improvement that, that Giants team has made gives any team picking in the top 10 or in the bottom 10 rankings of this league, hope year on year. Because by God, Brian Dable has done an unbelievable job there. So I, I don't know. 
how the hell he started there. Unbelievable. Yeah, I thought Wink. I thought Wink's scheme was amazing defensively. Did you, did you see? Thought, by the way, he's got an um, interview with the Colts. Today. I, I thought. I do, yeah, and I hope he gets a job. Actually, I think he's a fantastic coach. I think Wink's scheme is amazing. I thought Dayball, everything that he's done all season, but especially with Daniel Jones, but have three hundred and seven yards passing, seventy-seven yards rushing. He was the absolute dominant force in that game. He looked so confident. He looked like nothing was phasing him. Um, and I just thought that the the coaching job that they did was extraordinary. I will caveat that by saying I've thought all season long that that the Vikings are a sheep in wolves' clothing, and I think that was you know. Uh, I just don't trust Kirk Cousins in big moments like that, and and I think that if you if we just sat here at last week's Gridiron Show and said, you know what, it's going to come down to a fourth down play, and if I told you that Kirk Cousins on fourth and seven is going to throw fourth and eight is going to throw to you know five yards short of the sticks to a tight end who's covered by their best you know secondary player in Xavier McKinney and is not going to pick up the first down. All did, three. Did of you did you hear yep, his I post where he talked that. about that play and said Jefferson was the first read. They had him brilliantly oh. covered. He went to KJ Osborne, wasn't available. The sack was coming. He knew he was going to get hit. So he figured better to get the playoff five yards short and maybe something happens than just no, the best thing to do if you're gonna hit in if you're gonna hit like in hope like that. Just throw it up to yeah, throw it up to the best contested like catch guy throw. in the NFL right now. Like just That's unreal. I mean, he literally did that on third and 19, fourth and 19 in that Buffalo game, and he just threw it up to Jefferson. He makes the unbelievable catch. I just, I, I don't understand. I just can't fathom why you do it. And the worst of it was that Hawkinson, bless you, Will, the worst of it was was that Hawkinson had his back to where he was, you know, so he had to make the catch, shake off the defender who was on his back, and, and then I, turn and run. It wasn't like he was running, catching on the run towards game, the, the sticks. But not the, not the guy to go yeah, to in that terrific. situation. So with the coach of the year, it's come down to essentially three candidates at this point. Nick Sirianni, but you wonder how much those late losses in the season and nearly giving up that number one seed. If you're talking about the very tiny minutiae of the season, that might end up putting him. Carl Shanahan has the you know, third string quarterback going on a 10 game winning streak. Everything that else is involved with that. But huge amounts of talent both in terms of coaching and the team itself I think when you talk about performance above expectation I think Dayball at this point and I say that sat here in a 49ers jersey that that I think Brian Dayball is the coach of the year at this point and deserves those accolades and I wouldn't be that surprised if come Super Bowl week his team might not be there but he'll be at the NFL honors collecting that particular award I hope um Question: The thing is with the Vikings, and this is me leading into our final game, is that you know that much touted stat that they were eleven and zero in one score games, and you know is that a team doing brilliantly in those tight situations and outperforming, or is that a team getting just a little bit lucky? The old adage about not playing well and still winning, we saw it from the Bills this weekend, and we saw it from the Bengals this weekend as well, because. I think with Tyler Huntley and a lot of people thought the Bengals were going to flex their muscle and go and absolutely hammer them in this game. And it's only really thanks to a late stop and a just bizarre 98 yard defensive touchdown that they, they came away with the victory in this one. Yes. I, I mean, we made the point when you went to play with your potatoes that <laughs> in those divisional <laughs> games, it's always just, you know, it's just not quite the same as if Cincinnati played Jacksonville or Cincinnati played Kansas City or if they played Denver or if they played Miami. It's just a bit different because, you know, a bit like the Merseyside Derby or the North London Derby, doesn't matter how, how high up or down, how 
down low in the table they are. There's just something about those sorts of games. You saw it with Miami. You saw it in the first half with San Francisco and Seattle. And you certainly saw it last night with, with the Bengals, who looked for all the world, you know, the first drive, and the first couple of drives, like they were just going to smoke the Ravens. And, you know, uh, Tyler Huntley played an outstanding game. And, you know, you go back to that final play with the, you know, he, he really couldn't get a platform to, to to unload that pass. And he was about to get sacked and, and got it off. And James Prochet was, you know, if he was five foot, if he was six foot one and not five foot 11 or whatever, that's a, you know, that game's going to overtime because uh, they were so close to winning it. But just a bizarre, a bizarre way for it to end in terms of that return, which was astonishing in, in and of itself for so many reasons. You know, the fact they didn't run it with a, with a running back, the fact that, Huntley, if he'd if he'd just gone left rather than try to dive over the top, he could have walked in. The fact that he dangles it out and it's a great play by Logan Wilson, who I thought had a brilliant game. And then, you know, Hubbard himself going 98 yards, a Cincinnati kid. Mark Andrews running at 21 miles an hour, like the fastest <laughs> the season, to track it down and then just falling over to just to tackle it. It was just, it was crazy. It was such a, crazy a weird game. season from him. The, the, uh, the, the Tyler Huntley one, by the way, right? When they set up for the two-point conversion in the Jacksonville game from the one-yard line because of the penalty, you're looking at that and you're going, right, Trevor Lawrence, 6'6", built like a brick outhouse, just dive over the pile here. Like, I was sat there on my mates over just screaming, just go over the top, just go over the top, extend the ball out. Your arm's long enough that you could probably do it from the position you're stood in now, let alone with jumping over. You'll break the plane, you'll be fine. Tyler Huntley, not going low on that play. He's got two guys behind him to push him, just put your head down, bury in, hold on to the ball and let the pile do the work. Instead, he tries to go over the top. It's a bizarre decision. And then I'll tell you what really stood out to me by the end of that game was we sit here and we rip into, you know, newer head coaches, guys who have timekeeping issues, guys who have game management issues. One guy who... I've never necessarily expected that from is John Harbour. I'm sure there are other occasions of it in the past. But with 117 left in that game, they had an 11-yard pass, which got them into the red zone. They didn't snap the ball again, so there was only 34 seconds left on the clock. Then they had the holding call, and then they're basically just relying on passing from Tyler Huntley, when actually they had enough time to run the ball, run five or six more plays, potentially, if they get up to the line quickly, and get the ball out of bounds on a couple of them. And I just, I really thought they were going to go and tie that game up and go to overtime, and it was just horribly mismanaged at the end. You kind of expect that when it's back at their own 30, and they're having to hit some absolute hit and hope plays, but... Yeah, they were in the red zone with over a minute left on the clock. At like, just I can't understand how they got left in the position they were left in. I don't know what you Shocking. think, Mike. I, I do think that the the John Harbour era. I do get a sense, a bit like Arsene Wenger with Arsenal. You get a sense that there comes a time where every player, every coach has heard everything that you have to say. That you can't say anything original anymore, and that. It just feels like, you know, especially if he retains Greg Roman, uh, you just wonder whether or not there might be a, I don't know. I don't know whether or not it would happen, but just that perhaps time is up for Harbour in, in Baltimore. I do think it's really interesting moving forward that, you know, he... What I'll say, I feel like the, the when they got Roquan Smith in the middle of the season, it completely unlocked Patrick Queen and that turned that middle of that defense around hugely. And they, over the last couple of weeks, have absolutely just made the Bengals look like a, a bottom five defense, which in terms of talent and performance, okay, they've had the, the offensive line issues and 
amazing that a team like them managed to go 15 weeks without a single injury on the offensive line and then lose probably their three best offensive linemen in the space of three games. And that makes next week against the Bills very difficult. But they were held to 234 yards in this game. They were held to 258, 259 in the last game. If it hadn't been for converting 7 of 13 on third downs, they were averaging just over four yards a play. Like the Ravens defense played brilliantly. That's the one bit of hope I have is that you go, well, the defense is still brilliant and Lamar Jackson will be back in some way. Like they'll find really a way like- to make that happen. I I can't. Oh, have- I think that's, I think there's no way he returns. I really? can't. I think he's done. I think he's done. There is no way he can return from that. He is essentially, but what I don't believe he has, but I I think there are people within that organization who believe that he quit on that team. He wasn't even on the, he didn't even go to the game yesterday. That's, that's atrocious. Like a playoff game and he doesn't even turn up. I guess one thing not playing if you're injured, but well, unless he was asked not to turn up now, you know, because there was, there was clearly a lot of annoyance that he tweeted out the actual problem with his with his PCL and what was going on. Clearly, people were were annoyed about it. I, I'm not sure there's any comeback for Lamar uh, in that situation. I think they will ta- either tag and trade him. They'll get an offer for him. I yeah, they, they have uh, to. He, they have to tag and trade him. There's no way oh, they absolutely. could. They won't, rele- they won't release him. But I, just going back to that Harbour point, you, it's. America's had three presidents. There have been 21 Marvel movies, a global pandemic, an Avatar sequel. Drake has released six albums since he last won a Super Bowl. And I saw somebody say last night that that the only way, what the only reason he won a Super Bowl was because he played his other brother, who's also as big a choker as he is, and one of them has to win. <laughs> it's really unfair. Which, which, it's no, no, it's not unfair. Let's not forget in that game that they managed to, with the aforementioned Greg Roman, get down to a first and goal with Frank Gore in the backfield, and they went for essentially the same fade three plays in a row. Yeah. Like, I think they picked up, didn't they have first and goal inside the five three times last night yeah. and only came away with six points, maybe? And they didn't even, that, yeah. that was without Frank Gore, of course. But <laughs> 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 all right, just just very quickly, they gaming this out. They tag Lamar Jackson. Knowing Teams knowing that Lamar Jackson is going to want like a Deshaun Watson contract. He's going to want big guarantees. Maybe he won't get the length and quite the money, but he's going to want 45 million to 50 million a year guaranteed for three to four years. Somebody's going to pay three first round picks for him, right? Somebody's going to go mad. The Falcons, Arthur Smith, you know, look, you go back and look at what Arthur Smith did with, um, with Ryan Tannehill in that first season when Tannehill came in, getting him out of the pocket rolling him out, play action, using his legs. He doesn't have to... I think there has to be an evolution of what Lamar Jackson does. And it almost has to be go back to kind of prime Russell Wilson in Seattle, where Wilson was very good using his legs. Obviously, not nearly as close as uh, as Jackson was. But if you're going to miss six-plus games per season because you're, you're getting injured because of your running, you do have to tailor your game. If I'm Atlanta, I'd be all over that, making use of... Drake London and Kyle Pitts and Tyler Algier and and the players, the young players they've got on their offense. They've got two really good tackles. They've got a, Chris Lindstrom's a tremendous player. Caleb McGarry's a free agent, but I'd re-sign him. He's had a great year. I would absolutely be all in on a Lamar Jackson kind of deal. I have a suggestion. It's complete pie-in-the-sky thinking, and it almost definitely won't happen. The number one overall pick and Justin Fields for Ooh. Lamar Jackson. Because the Chicago Bears have more cap space than anyone in the NFL and buy 30 or 40 million on the second team to them. I, if I'm That's, Baltimore, yeah. I do that and I go and get my quarterback of the future on a four to five years of rookie contract. 
Mm-hmm. I like the Jets option, but I, I, I will say before I forget about this, so I can bookmark this next week, Will, this is the last point in this game for me. If I'm Joe Burrow, I'm breaking myself next week because that offensive line is absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and Jonah Williams has got a dislocated knee as well, so... It's a joke, like, like literally, like, it's like a bouncer in a nightclub. He just lets so everyone bad. in. Yeah. And it would be, it would be a damning indictment of uh, the front office if they get to another Super Bowl and they end, or they, they lose an AFC championship because he's not protected enough, you know, because ultimately, you know, we were all there. We saw what was happening. Joe Burrow was driving them down the field to win the game in the Super Bowl last year. And that offensive line caved at the worst possible time. And, you know, they, they lost the game. If the same thing happens again, uh, you know, it's, it's unconscious. I'm not one to defend the Bengals organization, the front office, the coaching or anything. I do think lose like an offensive line that's definitely been improved in the second half of this season to then lose three of their best players down the stretch is probably enough of an excuse for them to go, ah, yeah, just bad injury luck. I don't think that's right, but I think that's most organizations, particularly an organization like the Bengals, will probably look at that and, and sign it off, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you would, right? Right, anyway. Lovely stuff. That was a bizarre podcast where we had uh, one of the hosts just disappeared immediately. I ran off to make potatoes at one point. Uh, It went on for about twice as long as we intended. But we're going to have another show later in the week where we'll talk about who from the Cowboys and the Bucks gets to go to Levi's Stadium next weekend uh, and feel the the pain of Purdy. Uh, Imagine Brock Purdy against... Make it stop. Make it stop. Brock Purdy against Tom Brady in the playoffs. The regen over the legend. Uh, let's not forget what happened the last time the Bucks were in the Bay. Though, He's now calling him a regen after winning six games. It's just unbelievable. Uh, let's not forget uh, what happened last time the Bucks were in the Bay, though, gents. Uh, we'll have a repeat of that. That's fine. Sunday night football being an absolute bore. The divisional round is one of the best weekends in all of football. So we'll preview that a little bit later in the week. In the meantime, Thank you so much for listening, uh, for watching if you've done that and for getting involved at Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram, all those good places. Uh, This has been the Gridiron Show.